Hi, my name is Tony. And I'm Chris. And we love pop culture. We often find ourselves discussing film, music, literature, and more, going down the rabbit hole of how everything is connected. We want to share those moments in pop culture that are seemingly unrelated, but connected by just a few links. Welcome to the Pop Culture Connection. Excellent. Welcome back to another episode of the Pop Culture Connection. This is Tony again here. And Chris. A lot been going on past couple weeks. Um, you know, usually start out here talking about what's going on in pop culture. You know, I, I had mentioned last week, I just did a catch up little mini recording and talked a lot about Norm MacDonald. We were just discussing him before. We started, and it's still it's still hurting hard. Yeah, I guess I'm in denial still. Yeah, um, went down a rabbit hole of his guest appearances on different talk shows, and, and never knew what was going to come out of his mouth at any time. I don't think anybody did, nor the hosts or producers of those shows. Uh, there was an ex- excellent um, him on the View. That's all you need to... <laughs> Is that when he did his kind of apology for whatever yeah. Yeah. faux pas of the week it right. was? Right, whatever perceived slight yeah. at the time. Um, but he had a heart. He didn't want to set out to hurt anyone. Or he didn't even want to do the roast of Bob Saget because he didn't want to talk badly about his friend even in that. And he didn't like the format. Yeah. Yeah, those rows can be pretty brutal. Right. And so his his take on it was, let's read jokes from the 40s with a complete straight face and see if the audience gets it or not. Yeah, I think they did. I think um, just played by his own rules, and uh, that's why we love him. Um, as a man we'll discuss in this episode might say... So it goes. So it goes. Which is all you can really say about anything. Um, did you watch the Emmys at all? No. No. I've never watched an Emmys in my life. I can't say that I've ever... I, the Oscars I used to be into, the Emmys, and with the shows that... The big winners were Ted Lasso, Hacks, and The Crown, which I know of, but I haven't watched any of them. Yeah, I guess maybe it's not the best thing to say on this podcast here, but I'm not a huge TV person in terms of the classic network TV stuff. Um, unless it's from the sixties. Right. Uh, so I'm a little behind. Yeah. And there's a lot, there's just a lot of content. Now every streaming service has its own stuff and everything's coming out with their own new show. So you can't even keep track of everything. And Right. I mean, even 20 years ago, there was a lot of content and now that's just exacerbated tenfold. Right. Um, I, yeah, I know, again, I know of Ted Lasso. I've heard very good things about Ted Lasso and hacks. The crown seems like one of those drama series that are wink material for Emmy. Sure. My mom was really into it. She kept trying to get me to watch it. Yeah. But she she loves British period pieces. Oh, yeah. All you have to do is put on the crown jewels and uh, speak with an accent. And uh, she's she's on board with it. So Drier than Melba toast, but people love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I did like was uh, uh, WandaVision won for best original song for uh, Agatha All Along, which was a very catchy Tune. Well, I've not heard it. Is that the theme song? Uh, no, uh, an episode of uh, of WandaVision. Uh, they reveal who the man, the main villain, had been throughout the entire thing. Uh, oh, she had a why mon- don't we say that now? A monsters style theme to it. I already gave it away. If you don't already know, uh, the song is called Agatha All Along, and there's a character that you're pretty sure who that is. In the gotcha. show, but um, yeah, that the song actually itself um, went viral the next day, and like the downloads of it were crazy. So there's Emmys still have a bit of sway and pull when it comes to influencing things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
it seems as if the the red carpet event before any of these things is larger than the actual accolades and recognition. So, and you know me and my fashion sense. Oh, well, I'm the same way. I, you know, t-shirt, that's it. Just usually a t-shirt. Nothing else. So yeah, that's a big part of why I don't really get too into the award shows. There are other podcasts that will talk about those in depth. You know, I love television. There's shows that I watch now. There's shows that I make time for. um, And even older shows that I'll go back and rewatch. Like you said, there's plenty of material from 60s through the 90s that is now accessible right yeah you can watch it the full thing again and just kind of uh, binge all of that stuff i understand the impetus behind award shows but at the same time i don't understand it in terms of it seems like industry people congratulating industry people on the stuff that they're going to be doing anyway. Well, yeah, because the Emmys um, will award Emmys to other awards shows for and for doing a show about giving awards. So, so yeah, it all becomes very meta. Yeah. Into, so a lot of that is just a lot of uh, what we in the biz call circle jerking, and which is a good show. It's a great show, and that season was a good one. Three. Season three, I think, is where the circle really jerked jerked the most. Um, so it's it's an excuse to have a party in the who's who, and I understand that, but it doesn't really draw me in much. None of the stuff I ever really like gets recognition. That's true. Yeah, um, I did see. Uh, I don't know if you saw uh, Cassandra Peterson. A.K.A. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. I'd like to see her. Well, she, uh, just this past week, had uh, come out and said well, that she'd she? been in a uh, same-sex relationship for the past 20 years. Oh. She came out. Yeah. She was in a coffin. Well, probably still, yeah. Well, good for her. Um, but the best thing I saw about that was someone had tweeted... That's all well and good. Good for her. I'm glad that she's, you know, comfortable. But how the hell did her partner not start every conversation with, I'm dating Elvira? Maybe she did. And uh, depending on who you're talking to. No one. Yeah, right. Uh I wouldn't believe you if you told me. Why should you? Right. Uh, But I thought, yeah, I thought that was great. I know. Um. That she's starting, I believe they're kind of rebooting Elvira for a new series or something. Her? Another or show. Her being still being the character, yeah, bringing okay. it back to do another she's kind of B-movie, huh? yeah. Good for her. Yeah. I don't think you can, uh, you can keep doing that, that bit. It just, as long as she's able to still do it, wants to still do it, it works. As long as she's... Got the uh, appropriate attire, I guess. It was uh, a big part of it. Sure. Of uh, A big, big part of it. A couple big things there to be be reminded of. Um, And then speaking of something similar, uh, I see uh, some people are upset that uh, they're doing a new Roger Rabbit series and Disney toned down Jessica Rabbit's sexuality. So there are people who are very upset about that. Well, I guess um, those people probably had some uh, some intimate relationship with uh, Jessica, and so any changing of that character is going to be seen as an affront to uh, that relationship that they had. It seems like whatever you do, no, like yeah, there's no winning. You can't you do dand if you do dand if you can't don't. Can't you do anything without and even that? Because if they remade it and kept it the same, they would have got flagged from people as well. So, right. I mean, I thought the whole character was over the top for the sake of being a cartoon that's over the top. Yes, but uh, she was made to be a representation of the bombshell of yes. that era and overtly sexual. That was the whole point. But 
Well, I would say subtlety is lost on a lot of people these days, but overtness is also lost on a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, which these is days. weird when you think about it. That sure. You kind of have to just like, okay, here's what it is now. So I'm curious to know what the toned down version is. Yeah, I saw that it's um, it's kind of like a film noir trench coat, almost a um, Carmen Sandiego okay. type look, which they already have a character of. Her name's Carmen Sandiego. Yes. Well, they need to redo her. Right. She needs to probably be, will. She needs to be more flamboyant. I'm gonna make more her more sexual. Yeah, she's she's too low key. And no more talk about geography. Right, let's get that out of there. Like, a, no one cares about that part. Yeah. Doesn't bring, turn me on at all. Well, bring, it turns me on. Well, yeah, and especially with Rock Rappella mm-hmm. singing about it. So I don't. Yeah, no matter what you do, yeah, people right, are gonna be mean, upset. If it doesn't have Bob Hoskins in it, I don't know if I'm on board anyway. It's a good point, and. Without uh, Doc, um, Judge Doom. Yeah. yeah. yeah we, we'll just eventually dig everything up from the dead and uh, until it dies a, the slow, painful death and uh, find something, another corpse to beat. So it goes. So it goes. Uh, but yeah, that'll bring us to, you know, what we'll talk about for this episode. You know, we take two things that seem like they're not connected in any way might have a couple small ideas or concepts in common but um find the through lines that connect them the other moments of pop culture or film or music books and so today we wanted to talk about i know two of our favorite people yes um weird al yankovic and kurt vonnegut yes big influences so I don't say it would be exaggerating at all, no matter how much I say you and I are Weird Al fans. Like, there's no cap on that. We are massive, massive fans of Weird Al. It's just listening today, and not just because we're doing this episode, but that's just a daily occurrence. And now having uh, kids and having played Weird Al for them... I hear them playing it, and I just, I love it so much, because I've enjoyed it since childhood. Um, And I know we've talked about this before, uh, just personally, uh, but, you know, we'll kind of share with the audience. I probably heard Weird Al first when uh, Eat It came out. It was probably the first time I was made aware of who Weird Al was. Um, and then he had a couple other videos playing on MTV that I that I know that I caught, but it wasn't until a friend of mine had some old tapes that I think his mom got at a garage sale or that he was getting rid of of cassette tapes, cassette tapes of different all full Weird Out albums, and I listened to them until that I, I wore them out like everything back and front, just obsessed. Yeah, he kind of, you, you don't have that type of comedic performance in the mainstream music scene today. Can you think of another example where, I mean, Eat It was a huge hit nationally. Right. And it got airplay. Can you think of a comedy song that uh, received national airplay in the past 20 years? No, I believe I think it's um, everything is so done immediate now and on the internet that you can go and find as soon as a song comes out the next day there'll be a hundred parody various videos of it, but they might become viral in some way and but not anything because of yeah, it's not structured the same. No, as it used to be. no, it's not. That was he, you know, cashed in right at the time that came in right at the start of. Uh, music music videos and MTV, which was a big part of it, I think. Al TV. Another one of those music video kind of shows you watch on television. Al 
TV, the video music channel that makes everything else in life obsolete. Yeah, and I uh, remember seeing UHF, knowing who he was, but the video going along with his persona, and that just kind of got me... Solidified. Yeah, wanted me to, to dive a bit deeper into it. So I know, you know, again, kind of going back a little bit, you know, when I discovered him, um, you know, kind of like learning where he came from. And then became, when I got older, discovering the Dr. Demento show um, and actually had a tape my cousin had recorded of Dr. Demento from the 80s it was my first exposure to that and just how we wouldn't have Weird Al without it was Dr. Demento that first gave him any kind of airplay back in the late 70s when he was just sending in these tapes he recorded. The demos by, in yeah, the bathroom. In the ba yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they got at least, you know, Dr. Demento's show, pretty niche thing that right. some people listen to. Um, but from that came... The big then explosion as once he did a parody of Michael Jackson, that was it. Even something like Dr. Domeno, like you said, there are countless um, things on the internet that you can do, but to have a nationally syndicated radio program where your entire uh, focus is bizarre and comedic music, just something that uh, you're not going to find today. You no. know, the way the radio is structured. No. You're lucky if it's a college station at one. Two hours a week on yeah. like a Thursday night, that's someone's thing that they do. Uh, uh, that's why I still love Calibrating. I love here. It. Yeah, it's one of the best uh, things this region, the Cleveland region, has to offer is a, a rich and vibrant college radio scene. So you never know what you're going to tune into. There's some cool stuff out there, and people still playing um, some unique cuts and trying to get people, hey, expose people to these newer. Old things. These new old things. New old things. Yeah, I, I always want to stay away from the these kids these days uh, sort of paradigm because we're not really that old in the grand scheme of things. But uh, things have changed pretty drastically just in the past decade or two in terms of that. You have access to everything that you want. But, but you want... What do you want? What, what, yeah, and again, having younger kids, they have full access to any music, any movie they want. And when it comes to movies, they'll watch 24 hours of YouTube of some guy screaming while playing Minecraft. And that's what they want to watch. Like, you can, there's so much. You don't even know the world that you haven't even scratched the surface of yet. And I'm like itching for them to jump into that. It's very daunting. Maybe that's why people, we say we want to, to be free and make our own choices. And on some level we do. But at the same time, there's too many choices to be made. Can't somebody just do it for us and kind of curate and put together uh, um, something that we can access rather than just now the algorithm does it for you. We right. We bow down to the algorithm instead of another human being right and there's yeah there's too many interpersonal choices in that for algorithm works for you might like the same exact thing but mm -hmm. uh, it's not gonna really say but also you might like this i think there actually there is an, an app that's out that kind of analyzes what you listen to and watch and will recommend actual movies and music and podcasts based on your preferences instead of the, just the same YouTube video. YouTube wants you to keep coming back to YouTube. Yeah. Um, but there are other, you know, there's so much more out there. There is. So it must be, it must be difficult. Um, we had it easier. We had cassette tapes. Um, the first CD I ever bought with my own money was... Weird Al's Dare to be Stupid. Mm -hmm. We got a CD player for Christmas one year and 
There's the, even though I had it on tape, I wanted the CD quality sound. Of, was that $15? That's a lot of money back in the 90s. I think it was $15, $20, 20 bucks probably Jeez. at Camelot Music. Wow. Uh, but I was so, so, so happy with it. Um, you know, and that obviously continued on. But he's, Weird, Weird Al has continued to be popular. Yeah, he's still there. He's uh, still putting out stuff that, uh, I mean... When uh, once the the album with um, uh, Tacky and uh, Word Crimes, that, Mandatory uh, Fun was his, yeah, the latest one. But that was the number one album for yeah, that week. Which that again, other than him, who's going to do a comedy album? That's going and that that's massive in this kind of thing. And then uh, he did a, a video and song to go with the. 2020 presidential debate which mm-hmm. went viral and kind of showed you how we're all doomed yeah no matter what in a fun way in a fun way in the only way he can a little bit i think subversive is that slight we're all gonna die and nothing really matters kind of but he's not uh mean or mad about it kind of like norm mcdonald yeah know, somebody whose comedy could cut cut and be on one hand so seemingly uh, offensive, but when you look at it and dissect it, it's not. It's just uh, like all good comedy. It's a truth that you're pushing forward and say, look at this truth. Isn't it, isn't it wacky? And some people are able to, to look at it and that maybe something else that speaks up, uh, you know, about him. You don't really see a lot of people up in arms about he walks, he walks the line. I think not, like ripping sinks off of walls and getting drunk and that kind of walk in the line. <laughs> but he does, he kind of straddles it enough that he's not going overboard in any way. But if you listen, he's he's really saying some some good stuff. It's hard to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. To that line and uh, keep people uh, entertained and say funny stuff that... Mildly subversive, but at the same time not making anybody offended or... Uh, like maybe if he had come out now, things would be different. You know, people would say, uh, you know, girls just want to have lunch. That's that's offensive. It's fat shaming. Yeah, fat shaming. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, that's true. Um, I'm so sure someone can find a way to be offended or... It's pretty easy. Yeah. It is. I think that's the. It, it's easy to be offended. You can really be offended by anything, and yeah, is it is it worth saying something about? Most of it, no. Right. But I just. I mean, I'm constantly offended by stuff, but uh, it's not anything that's going to ruffle any feathers. My stuff is more ideological and uh, uh, stuff nobody else really cares about. So right. it doesn't have a. A target to it. Target's offensive. Target is offensive. Minnesota. <sighs> but I think for me, as far as comedic influences go, um, people that I've loved my entire life, you know, Weird Al has been the. You and I have gotten to meet him. Yes. Which was a very excellent night, live show. and We got to greet him more. That, so. It was a greet, yes. It was a quick. Here you go. But I whispered in his ear. Yeah. And he seemed, I love you. He seemed put off by it. <laughs> well, he whispered in my ear that he was put off by yeah. it. Yeah. It, it was a good time. Um, but he had some, you know, ups and downs, I think, in his career. Times that he's kind of went away a little bit and came back. Um, but there was a period in summer of 1989 that a movie came out. And something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, this movie came out again summer of 1989, which also had Batman, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, and License to Kill. And they decided, let's release Weird Al's UHF alongside these other films and see how it does. And it was, you know, it it was the top ranking film amongst all of them, right? I think it still to this day has made 
for my money, again, at that age, it came out around, I remember it coming out around my birthday in that summer, and I begged my parents to take me to go see it. And I loved every second of that movie. It's a good time. There's just one place to go for all your spatula needs. Spatula City! Spatula City! A giant warehouse of spatulas for every occasion. And um, something that, again, I, I've shared. If you haven't had a chance to see UHF, I do highly recommend it. It's a very strange, almost <laughs> um, airplane, Kentucky Fried movie type feel. Almost like a series of sketches and uh, held together by a loose plot. But absolutely bizarre character of George Newman. It's like a Walter Mitty-esque type of guy who dreams of doing something bigger in his life. Uh, his uncle wins a local TV UHF station in the card game, which we don't even have UHF I anymore. Say maybe you have to make a disclaimer there of what, what is that? Uh, basically, it's, it's a local access. Or if you grew up, um, if you're over the age of 38, you probably remember local access cable. And uh, basically just a studio... Somewhere out in the middle of nowhere that would broadcast a a, um, a signal that didn't get very far, only the surrounding neighborhoods, and there was really no oversight as to what could go on on those, those right. channels. If you had the money in a lot of the stations, if you they just had anyone who wanted to come on in the studio... If you want to talk about something, if you paid, it was like an open mic night. It was before yeah. internet, mm-hmm. and you had some extra money, and you had a crazy thought or song or idea that you wanted to get out of your head. This was the the chance to do it. Yeah, it was a telethon-esque vibe. During the day, it was a lot of Christian uh, stuff, a lot of... Um, Fundraiser stuff, maybe some uh, uh, used car dealership spots, and then after it got dark, as the same goes, the freaks come out at night. And and that's when all the fun started. And these people that just wanted to be on TV and uh, didn't really have a plan, so to speak, they just had a bunch of weird friends who were willing to work for free. I mean, Wayne's World is the... Yeah. That's probably the best. It's the best known example. Example of what that was like, um, and just something that's not. We again with YouTube and anyone being able to record themselves and put it out there. Uh, it's not really a thing anymore, but there was a fe- look and a feel to a public access station production that just made it creepier. Mm-hmm. Yes. I it, you did mention um, kind of a telethon feel, which does happen. In the movie, yeah. um, having to raise money to save the station from the evil antagonist who is going to shut them down. Um, Which they all won, by the way. Yes. In real life, the evil empire closed them all down. Yeah. So they, they didn't have that plucky janitor character played by Michael Richard. A great, great cast that was in, you know, Fran Drescher, besides Weird Al, early Michael Richard's role. You know, we'll talk about Seinfeld probably in a few episodes coming up, but even prior to that, there was Stanley Spadowski and what a bizarre character he was. But there is uh, actually a telethon uh, within within the movie itself and in one of the more bizarre scenes. I have to play a sound clip of it because I can't even really, this is not a visual podcast, uh, but it's just... Two guys with tank tops hunched over with large chins and going for 30 seconds. We also had a whole lot more of the Kipper kids, but tragically, that too wound up on the cutting room floor. And there they go. Yep. Uh, 
So I, I think people, when they see that movie, at that there's a lot of weird things that happen. But that's the one of the parts that people go, "What the hell am I watching?" Yeah, right. He now. earns his namesake there. Yeah, putting that in. Um, and those are. It wasn't just to let's be weird, just to be weird. Um, those are two actual uh, performance artists um, named Harry and Harry Kipper, otherwise known as the Kipper Kids. Uh, so. Didn't know much about them. I know that they've had some appearances in other TV shows. It looks like uh, some interesting facts about them. Uh, real names are Martin, Sebastian, Von Hilselberg, and Brian Ralph. Uh, so they were just two artists, uh, performance artists, um, and ended up becoming this duo of the Kipper Kids uh, in getting to the end of the 70s and afterwards. Uh, apparently, uh, Martin Sebastian von Hazelberg is married to Bette Midler. <laughs> which, really? <laughs> right there is a. I mean, that could have been an episode of the show right there. Wow! Very interesting connection. So, who the, was on Seinfeld? One of the Kipper kids. One of the guys going. Anyway, Jeff is married too. Is that what turned her on? I was like, I, I gotta don't. seek this man out and marry find him. him. Find him. Find <laughs> him. It was like when Jamie Lee Curtis first saw Christopher Guest. Mm-hmm. It was like the same kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, a very, very odd thing that I I didn't know. Um, apparently, uh, they were also on an episode of Moonlighting. Which was known for having more surreal episodes, uh, more conceptual episodes. Uh, Moonlighting was pretty ahead of its time for when it came out. And there was an episode where they were the Kipper kids were in a dream sequence playing uh, grave diggers. It's oh, a good so, role for them. I think so. Yeah, I think that works. Um, Have you seen Moonlighting? Moonlighting was on... When I was very young, my yeah. parents loved it. My parents watched it. It's like, but I had to go to bed, um, and it was almost like a taboo. You're not allowed to see this. There's too much sexual tension between okay. Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis. Yeah, I just remember... All I remember of it as a kid was Bruce Willis being like uh, worked up all the time. and Not in, even in a sexual way, maybe. I, I didn't understand it at the time, but I remember he was just constantly like... Ugh. Yeah, his early comedic Bruce Willis. Yeah, before action star. That's all I remember of yeah. the show. And exasperated Sybil Shepherd. Yeah. I remember the exasperated Sybil Shepherd, like oh, oh, you. Yeah. But that's about all. But I've caught clips of it now, you know, here afterwards, and it did end up in syndication uh, before. So I know I've caught it some episodes, but I've never watched. That's one I've never watched all the way through. Uh, I do know when looking back on it was. Uh, very cutting edge for, especially for network television. Yeah. yeah, it's one I gotta go back to. Like you said, there's access to everything now, and all these shows my parents watched uh, in the '80s and '90s that were just over my head, or uh, like you said, it's bedtime. It's yeah, nine nine thirty. This show's coming on, and yeah, I, I didn't want to watch the show. I just wanted to stay up, and, right. but I faint. Yeah, I didn't interest. care what the show was. Yeah. I just wanted to be up later than Mister Belvedere. Mm-hmm. Not later than Mister Belvedere, because he wouldn't stay up that late. He, he would yeah. write in his diary. He was, he was an early to bed, early to rise right. kind of guy. Yeah, because he needed to keep the family running because they didn't know what they were doing. No, he was the glue. But yeah, I would just be like, I want to stay up and watch thirty something. Right, that was yeah. That was another one yeah, that I, I could not have gotten a shit about, but because it was on later than my bedtime, you know, I can be awake. I, I love the show. Yeah, I understand what they're talking about. Right. I, I I can identify. identify with, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't know much of of that. So it was interesting to see. Uh, I think that the Kipper Kids of all people were that. Um, they also did a short song in. You can hear that clip uh, in the Adams Family film. They do a little song called Playmates. Oh. Uh, that's over like a montage of Pugsley and Winslow. Yeah, I had that soundtrack. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's them. Um, which, when you think about it, it's like, okay, that makes that makes sense. It's goofy. Mm-hmm. 
that they were in is uh, a little movie from 1982, um, pretty kind of obscure from what I know, called Forbidden Zone. So is that one that you've seen? No. All right. It's not one that I haven't. I ended up finding a copy of it. I only found out about Forbidden Zone maybe within the past 10, 12 years. Um, just kind of like going down rabbit holes of stuff like this, and especially looking when you know when kind of getting into avant garde, art house, weird films. It's one that's kind of brought up on a lot of lists of strange movies. It sounds like a late night Skinamax movie with lots of steamy saxophone solos. Uh, it's more of. It, Kind of reminiscent of a John Waters, if John Waters made a late night <laughs> zone and then got Danny Elfman to do, to be in it. Um, it was written, actually produced and directed by Richard Elfman, Danny Elfman's brother, but Danny Elfman is in it and helped uh, be part of the music for that. It was shot in the late 70s, but didn't premiere until 82, I think. Um, but the movie itself is set in an, a, around an alternate universe accessed through a door in the house of the family called the Hercules family. And it's really based on the stage performances of the later of the theater troupe um, that was the Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo. Uh, Danny Elfman, Richard Elfman, their original theater troupe and musical production of the Mystic Knights. I mean, that idea has been done to death. I think everyone, at some point in their life, you know, you get, when you turn 18, you get a tattoo, and then you form, <laughs> you form, form an avant-garde troupe, troop yeah. that you then eventually turn into a movie. Just keep saying to yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. It's only a movie that will have you living in the sixth dimension, moving in the wrong direction. A new fantasy musical comedy. The Forbidden Uh, so it is one that I think we need to watch. I would love to to check it out. This is uh, in the sort of uh, fantasy mm-hmm. realm. It's something. It's an adult movie or uh, no? It's it, it's a it's probably more geared towards adults. Again, it's just very strange stream of consciousness almost to it, and more centered around being. Uh, like an art house type. Okay. Just this production is is what we're putting on. You don't have to worry about much else. I've always found it fascinating that uh, all the stuff I've seen from uh, highbrow stuff to schlock, that for everything we've seen, there's a dozen things that we have not seen. That's true. When you start looking into it, and then just, there are whole subsets, subgenres of movies. Uh, even if you go into exploitation films, that there's a hundred. They were grindhouse films were being cranked yeah. out, so and, and maybe one or two were a gem, and others kind of forgotten the time. But they might have had something to them that you know was the first time something was done, or the first appearance of a actor that ended up being big or some connection between technique or, right. or sound design yeah that, or, yeah there's a lot out there and 
That's why I appreciated doing like the horror movie marathons when we would go uh, to that Drexel Theater in Columbus. Uh, and they would show some of those old trailers. I would never have found out about werewolves on wheels mm-hmm. without. Uh, you would have missed out. If you want to see a good werewolf biker film, you want to see the only werewolf biker film. Quintessential. Is it? But yeah, I and I think um, that Forbidden Zone is very much one of those kind of forgotten. That's I, you know, obviously not a big budget. No one huge was in it. Um, uh, I can't remember the actor's name from uh, Fantasy Island. The little person, I think he might have been the one of the bigger stars in it. So that should tell you something. But really, it was again to showcase uh, Miss Knights of Oingo Boingo, which, if you know, later on, you know, ended up Danny Elfman before he was doing film scores. Prominently, uh, there was new wave band in the eighties, Boingo Boingo. Uh, you know, I don't. Can you, can you call them new wave? What, what would you classify uh, them as? Were, they were one of those bands that they were their own thing. Um, a lot of times, you you hear a band name, and it's just a, a moniker. You know, it's just like okay, well, this has no relationship or or affinity for the music but if someone were to ask you to describe the sound of the band i think oingo boingo would be an apt description that's a good point you could just say that instead of trying to describe each song yeah because you can go by album or by song and just yeah if you just said oingo boingo i think that and it was i remember that being one of the bands too in 80s sitcoms that like the teenager of the family liked and the parents are always like, what kind of name is that? It was yeah. always the joke. I'm like, Oingo Boingo. It was just too weird. Yeah. And that peaked. I was like, who are these people? Mm-hmm. Why do parents question their name? That makes me want to look into them right. and find out what they're about. It only peaked. It only, you made monsters of us. Yeah. Um, great, great band. They are on like, anything else you know i can be in a certain mood for them um you know they had a couple i think i maybe their biggest hits uh were dead man's party weird science weird science which was written for the movie of the same name back when um, you had to write the song yeah, for the so movie. we were talking about that recently yeah mm-hmm. but it's still a great song um little girls yep. is is up there um it's probably their one of their better known uh, songs but they appeared on a on soundtracks too especially in that time they're on soundtracks for Fast Times at Ridgemont High uh, 16 Candles of course Weird Science um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 Teen Wolf 2 yeah it's almost as if that family had an in in the movie industry I think Danny Elfman knew what he was doing he was very smart about marketing himself and um, using that as a stepping stone for his transition you know, into transition scores. into going dee, 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 mm-hmm. a lot, which works for him. It does, and uh, made him very rich and made every almost every Tim Burton movie. I enjoy a good Danny Elfman score, and not a bad vocalist as uh, no? Jack Skellington. It's very good, still a very good singer. I know that um, this Halloween they're doing a live production full orchestra with him performing in the role um showing the movie at the same time which would be incredible to see wow it's still still beautiful uh film and just you know him writing all of that music and it's such so iconic yeah. right now talented guy absolutely and, and i love the anecdote uh, the story of where Tim Burton approached him, asking him to do the score for Peavy's Big Adventure, and he was like, I, I don't do movie scores. I'm in a band. And Burton's just like, yes, just try it. Just, just do, do it. it. Yeah. And he's like, okay, I'll give it a shot, and then the rest is history, and now he's probably, I mean, outside of John Williams and maybe Jerry Goldsmith, Howard Han, yeah. Hans Zimmer, Yeah. can you name 
other uh, famous uh, composers of movie music. Yeah, and one most recognizable. And that the feel, I mean, when you think about his body of work and look back at themes for Batman and Tales from the Crypt and Beetlejuice, it's, uh, so many of these films, these dark tough, he's got that feeling to it. Um, you know, he started out doing kind of lighter stuff when Tim Burton was first starting to direct. Um, and I know that one of the first things he scored uh, was also uh, Back to School mm-hmm. in 1986, Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. Um, so that is one that I kind of remember seeing in theaters when it came out. It was, was at it? the height of Rodney Mania. It was. Yeah, my parent, my dad at least was a huge, like, we're seeing it. I don't care what content it is, taking the family to see this. It was a solid premise. A 60-year-old man goes back to college. Thornton Mellon. And he's got a kid in college, and he wants to prove that he can still, he never graduated, kid his way through school. Before Billy Madison, there was Thornton Mellon. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of money, could get away with it, and all sorts of shenanigans ensued. Yeah, this was um, much like Ladybugs, which would follow just a, a vehicle to have Rodney to do, to do, do his, his thing. Do his thing, right. Um, you know, stroke, but you look at the cast, too, of uh, Keith Gordon, Sally Kellerman, Ned Beatty. Sam Kinison as a history teacher in one of the, probably the more funnier scenes mm-hmm. of the movie. Ro- young Robert Downey Jr., babyface Robert Downey before Iron Man, and William Zabka at his height of I'm a blonde bully yeah. who's a better sportsman than you. Yeah, which every movie from the 80s like that needs. Yeah, you get that kind of you know, like, We get this guy, William Zabka. We're going to make it. The consummate asshole. And he was good at it. He was good at it. I hear he's a really nice guy in real life. He is supposed to be, yes. I mean, well, you know, Cobra Kai has, has proved that. Uh, but, yeah, perfect vehicle for, for a Rodney Danger field. That seems like a movie that the studios... You understand what's, what's trending and what's hot. I mean, studios and executives were... The arbiters of this uh, that's where we are where we are today but just kind of like hey this guy Dangerfield is uh, he's really on right now let's make a movie like it was kind of one of those movies written over a weekend I think and uh, not to say it's a bad movie no uh, but it was a, a quick premise from a hat what if you're a guy that's you know it was like if you were on Saturday Night Live as the host and someone was pitching a sketch. You're mm-hmm. 60-something, you're rich, and you need to go back to college with your kid. Plus, you're Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. What would happen? Um, Arguably the best one-liner comedian yeah. of all time. And he made it work. Um, it's still some great, again, Sam Kinison, great, some great cameos. Uh, also, during a party, who's playing... Who's the band playing at the party, but Oingo Boingo doing Dead Man's Party. Mm-hmm. Great little bit there. So in addition to Danny Elfman doing that that score from the movie, he was like, like you said, I got an in here. You need a band for this for this <laughs> so party the, scene. You know who I I know a couple guys. Another big eighties and early nineties trope was the the band at the party the, mm-hmm. that's sort of this semi famous uh, mid-level band right. that just also happened to be playing at this frat house. Right. right. They uh, just showed up at this party. Well, probably Thornton Mellon probably paid them. Maybe paid them off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he ended up with uh, <laughs> some interesting cameos, but I think the most shocking, the one that comes out of most out of left field is when his character has to write a paper for his literature course about Kurt Vonnegut. So he pays Kurt Vonnegut to write the paper for him. Hi, I'm Kurt Vonnegut. I'm looking for Thornton Mellon. Uh, what do you think? Someone else wrote this? Look, all I know is that you didn't, and that's what disappoints me. 
Tell you something else, whoever did write it doesn't know the first thing about Kurt Vonnegut. And another thing, Vonnegut, I'm gonna stop payment on a check. What's that? Fuck me. Hey, Kurt, you read lips. Fuck you! Next time I'll call Robert Ludlum. And Kurt Vonnegut shows I'm not an actor playing him. <laughs> Just nope. 10 seconds. Hi, I'm Kurt Vonnegut, and that's it. One of the best cameos. Because it's so unexpected. I don't know of him doing anything else like that. I don't know of any other movie that he's in. Other than maybe like a, you know, of talking in a documentary or something. He seems like a guy that just, well, well they asked me. I think that was it. They, yeah, I think from, I was trying to find information about it, but there doesn't seem to be a lot. But it, it does sound like it was a matter of, hey, we're doing this. You want to do it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, nothing else going on yeah, right maybe now. Maybe the script writer was a fan. Just wanted to throw him in there in the movie. And then they thought, like, hey, let's uh, see what he's doing. Uh, it just, uh, yeah, it's a perfect. And I love the fact that the literature teacher hated, ended up hating the paper and saying that you obviously know nothing about Kurt Vonnegut, which brings it up. Was she just judging it as thinking that he, Thornton, wrote it so anything that was written was going to be bad or do you think that Vonnegut purposely wrote a shitty paper because he didn't agree with being used to write a paper about himself are we doing a deep dive into uh into in the back of school into this one this scene? is what you come prepared for. now if I had to guess I would say that the the, the professor uh Prejudge this old man, um, but you know Vonnegut's a, he's crafty, and it seemed he seemed like somebody who would just uh, sabotage it on purpose. So I don't know. That's what I'm. That's what I'm thinking. Is uh, he might have he didn't get up getting paid for it, and maybe he knew. Right. So it was like I'm just gonna do this my way. Another person like I'm gonna do it the way I'm gonna do it, and. That's, you know, that's who we, uh, we, you know, we ended up with. He's, he's sorely missed. I can't even imagine what his viewpoint on the world today would be. Well, you hear the term ahead of his time or ahead of their time thrown around a lot, but I think that is an apt, uh, description of him. Um, I, I came to, uh, Notice his works via my ninth grade English teacher mm-hmm. had us all read Cat's Cradle. Yes, and I, I, you know, you know how kids feel about uh, required reading. So most people just groaned and mumbled. I probably did myself, and uh, but then I actually read it. You know, half the people just pretend to read it, right? And uh, after that, I was a convert. Yes, it, uh, it was eye opening, and to think that he wrote. That book in 1963, it just seems so modern uh, in terms of tone and content. Oh, yeah, so much of, oh, other than... I mean, it is modern. Other but, than some references to specific technologies that would have been around at that time, if you took that, if you updated a couple of the references, so, you know, even other stuff, other stuff he wrote feels the same way. It's just such a unique look at everything, and I had the same experience. It was required read Cat's Cradle was required reading one year. I think it was summer reading, and then uh, we also required reading was Slaughterhouse Five, and again both of them. I was just other people were griping about it, and I was just like I was all in. It's like I want to talk about it. Who is this guy? I want to find out more. You know, what did he? Where did he come from? Indiana. Yep, there you go. Yeah, that's all I needed to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his whole uh, attitude, I guess, uh, really, I'm going to say jived with mine, but it, then it raises that question of, was I somebody who was open to this, and so I received it, or was I influential, and that influenced me to be, you know, he sort of persuaded me towards that direction. Right. The chicken or the egg thing. Right. 
And that anyone who can is who is able to do that at least make you think about it. And there's not you don't always find that uh, in in authors, you know, even on his his time. So it was I feel lucky that you know schools still re, you know make them kind of required reading. I guess at some point, really, um, there's bad words in those books. In the mid '60s, I guess, uh, in Republic, Missouri, decided to withdraw Slaughterhouse Five from its libraries. So the Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Library offered a free copy to the students, which is a very him thing to do. Yeah. Um, which I I love that. I just that should not deprive, no matter what the language is, they're old. They're high school students. They're they're able to to handle it, yeah. Especially something like that, you know. Maybe they we wouldn't be in some shitty places with where things go with his favorite subjects of war and religion, mental health, mental health. Yeah, that's another ahead of his time. That's a good, he was, yeah. He was discussing mental health issues decades ago, and his mother had committed suicide by overdose. His son. Uh, had a mental breakdown. He obviously struggled greatly with his own issues of depression and attempted suicides. And but he wasn't somebody who kept that bottled up. He was more than willing to talk about it and, and I say this is part of the human condition. PTSD before we even coined the term PTSD. It was of, called battle fatigue then. Right. And that's or, or post operational exhaustion. I think and was the. That, yeah, that was, you know, kind of like passed off and he was so good at kind of exploring that and kind of putting you right there with that of this is what can happen if we're not careful, if we don't, you know, give people an outlet, if we allow them to continue down these paths. Yeah. Which, again, you know what, you know, he passed away. Was one of those other than one of those times that, you know, he might say so it goes, but it just it definitely lost some of that. There's no one else really like him that I lived a long life. There's you know, despite his attempts to end it early, right? And, uh, despite his his lifestyle of being a pretty much a lifelong drinker and heavy heavy smoker, uh, to live into your eighties, that he, most people would think that. That lifestyle is a death sentence, but uh, he, like many, he things, made it work. Bucked the trend, right? And I think there's certain uh, there's certain genetics there. There might be just like a willing, like a I'm not gonna let if I'm gonna die, it's gonna be by my own doing somehow. So yeah, it was it was good. I did in preparation. Just kind of went back because it's been a, a while since I've read any Vonnegut. I think it's probably a few years. Um, so I, I went back and got the audiobook at least for, for Slaughterhouse Five and listened to it. I just like immediately wanted to pop it in again as soon as it ended and just kind of like explore a little bit more too. Yeah, I went on a quest to, um, just due to the Cat's Cradle required reading. It was right when the series of covers of, um, the Dial Press books came out, which is just the very stylized uh, V and then the, the black bar right. across the front. And uh, so I went on a, a hunt to find his entire collection in that cover style of paperback. And I'm only missing one book. So if you ever see Sirens of Titan in the trade paperback size in that cover style, get it for me. It's here anyone. You're listening out there, mm-hmm. Science of Titan, in the trade paperback series, Kurt Vonnegut. The dial press have it, covers from the mid-90s. Let us know. We'll make a deal. They're hard to find. Someone must have. Someone's got to have it. Yeah. Someone's got to have, have it. And we have tens of listeners right now. Mm-hmm. So, But, uh, yeah, that was our... Third connection, our third episode. Taking um, us to Weird Al. Weird Al. Through to Kurt Vonnegut, some of our uh, favorite people, some of our biggest influences that made us the uh, people we are today, for better or worse. 
Yeah, and that's why I like I like doing this because it's well, you and I might mention Kurt Vonnegut and Weird Al in the same sentence. Just about what you do this weekend. Oh, I read this and listened to this. Um, it's, you know, two things that people, a lot of people know and love and influential to them, but not my piece together. But, you know, you have Oingo Boingo and Danny Elfman and the Kipper Kids to thank, to get you there. To get you there. So another area to explore because they, you know, they're not just the meat on that sandwich. Yeah. You never know how these things are connected. If you are, Enjoying the show. If you're listening, please uh, please reach out. Let us know what you think. Uh, we have our Gmail account at thepcccast at gmail.com. Our Twitter is thepcccast. The Pop Culture Connection on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, so, you know, leave a review. Leave a comment. Send us an email. Tell us what you think. Um, if you're from somewhere outside of our region here in Northeast Ohio. Tell us where you're from and how you heard about us and what you like or don't like. And if you have any suggestions that you want to do or a challenge for us to try to connect, definitely let us know because I'm all up for that. And so until next time, stay connected. <laughs>